Hey, everyone. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of The Lounge. Um, today, we have a special guest here with us, and this is Dr. Sherry Moore, and she's going to discuss specifically mental health within the BIPOC community. So Dr. Moore is a recent residency graduate of Community Health of South Florida. I said that correct, Dr. Moore? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. And she graduated from their psychiatry program. She is most interested in forensic psychiatry and will be joining the field as a lead psychiatrist at a local correctional facility. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Moore. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to uh, um, my welcome? <laughs> no, you're welcome. That's great. I would say that I am a DO. Um, I went to A.T. Still University in Kirksville. Um, and then I took a little bit of a gap along my four-year residency path. So I just graduated and I started my job today. So today was my first oh, day attending. Congratulations. So now we're real. But yeah, my interest is in uh, forensic psychiatry. I ended up in the correctional field sort of haphazardly, but I think it works best because a lot of our patients, inmates are minorities. And it's the first time they've probably seen a, a Black doctor and also a Black psychiatrist. So I think it fits perfectly. Wow. I would have to agree. I mean, I'm not on that end yet, but even, yeah. I mean, in every field, right, we're just, we are the minority and yeah. some people even get to like their sixties before they've seen a right. black physician. So kudos to you. It's awesome. Um, and we're so happy to have you here with us today. So we're going to go through some questions for you. Um, can you speak specifically to your trajectory to medicine? I know you mentioned you graduated from a DO program and why you decided to choose this path. Okay. So I did my undergrad at Smith College, which is an all women's college. And I was already interested before then in high school in neuroscience. Um, so I was a neuroscience major. I only applied to neuroscience programs and Smith College had the best package for me in terms of diversity, um, really helping women find their voice in a very male dominated field and how to take your STEM background and put it into something applicable. So from Smith College, I ended up going to Cleveland Clinic and I worked there with research for a, a few years. I'm not sure if I wanted to be a PhD or if I wanted to do the route to go through and, and be a physician. And what I figured out from doing a bunch of research is that I don't really like getting negative results. Like that experiment didn't work. That's great. And it pushes the project forward, but it's not rewarding in the same way as it is working with patients. So I um, ended up switching to a nonprofit, applying for medical school. Um, and on my off days, I would take vacation and go interview. So no one knew. And I got in and then decided that I would do DO because my mom, um, she had a cancer diagnosis around the same time I was applying and her oncologist was a DO. And the way that he approached my mom, she's Caribbean, she's from Trinidad. The way he approached her when she said, I don't want to do chemo. I'm scared of medications. I don't think this is, goes with our, our, what we think. Maybe I'll just eat healthier. All of these things that come up with our anxieties about being in medicine and our anxieties about Western medicine. He mm -hmm. was the only person that took the time to really talk with her and sit down and say, well, what, what's uncomfortable about it? What do you mm -hmm. want to do instead? If we do music therapy first and then you do the chemo, what are your questions? So he took the time with our family in a different way. And this was at Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland and allowed me to sort of see that DOs approach things a little bit differently from that perspective. I did a DO program and I decided from there that's what I wanted to do. I um, 
I hated most of the things in medical school when I went to my <laughs> clinicals. Every single one, I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that either. And then I came back and I remembered, you're a neuroscience major. The thing that you're good at that's, that actually helps push the, for, the field forward is that when people see you, they instantly connect with you because you look like their sister. You look like mm. their And so now it wasn't me just doing the same gallbladder procedure and we're doing another gallbladder and we're doing another gallbladder. Like I hated surgery, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> it was the, your face. And now the, the patient is talking to me and usually they push us aside. They only want to talk to the guy, even if it's a medical student in the room, they want to talk to the white guy in the room because he's the one that, you know, is probably in charge. Now they're mm -hmm. looking at me because they don't want to talk to the guy in the room. They want to talk to me and say, hey, you know that song that came out recently? Like, yeah, I know the song that came out recently. So now we have a springboard. So I decided from there that as a minority, it was important for me to do psychiatry. It was something I was good at. I like to talk anyway. So I was able to use those things. And there's no, there's no lab test for depression, right? I have to get to know you first to, to see if that's what's really going on. So it right. requires me to have a different skill set. And it requires me to be brown to talk to you in some places and that's okay. So I just felt like, you know, you, you can be good at a lot of things and I was on the charts for a bunch of different specialties, but that's the one that I made the most difference just by being who I was and being casual and wearing sneakers every day. And that was fine. And my patients were cool with that. And so I ended up in psychiatry and now forensics, and I can't imagine doing anything else. Like I can't imagine doing anything else. Like there's no other doctor I want to be. I look at other people doing their questions. I'm like, Ugh. Good thing that depression's on the on the docket today. So it just is where I ended up. And I think that you, throughout medicine, you find those little keys where you're like, this fits, this makes sense. This feels like home. And you got to definitely pursue those. Even if someone is telling you, you can't pursue those. I was told a million times, just do family medicine. You can do both or just do something. Like a specialty is a just anyway. It's difficult in every single specialty. Find the one that you love and that doesn't feel like work. You just gave us our Sunday sermon. So thank you. <laughs> Find what you love and do that. And mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like, I know it's work, but it doesn't feel like work because right. you're in your passion. I love that. Thank you for sharing. And also I love, so can I ask, did you apply solely to DO schools based on your experience with your mom? I, I did not. I did half and half. I think I applied to like 30 schools. I did 15 and 15 because my first score of my step one or level one was not great. My mom had got diagnosed just then. And so I failed the mm -hmm. first time and I had to apply again and I passed the second time. So I already knew there's um, a ding on your application. So I applied really wide like you're supposed to and half and half. I actually got into more MD schools than DO schools. But when I yeah. went to the interview, the only ones who asked me about myself were DO schools, which may have just been the onslaught of the things that I that I chose. I was in mostly Midwest and stuff. I really wanted to go to Ohio State because I'm a Ohio State fan. And it just ended up being that I ended up matching to DO and that's that's how I was. And I think that I also Kirksville super small, right? But it focused me because I would love to be outside. I would love to do other things, but it focused me in a way that allowed me to be successful in a really hard place where mm -hmm. there was only a hundred kids, right? There's only a hundred of us in our medical school. So when I'm having a terrible day, somebody notices when I'm not there. That's important when you're thinking about medical school and you're thinking about college, any of those places, who's going to be there? Cause no one tells you to show up. You missed three or four days. Now you're behind. Now you're a section. Mm -hmm. 
Now we're looking at, oh, I've got to get an A on this next exam because i got to have an average of 70-something percent. So I went to a place that ended up fitting sort of how I am and, and how I need to have someone to hold me accountable. I need to have someone to spring ideas off of. I'm an external processor. If I'm studying, I need to have you there next to me and we got to talk about, if the patient thought about this, what would he look like? What kind of guy would he be? What would his mm-hmm. symptoms be? And that solidified it in a way that other kids were reasoned through the material, but they were good at just reading and retaining it from that or just right. questions. And I just wasn't that kind of person. So I went to a place that was small enough that I think made me more successful. And then MD programs that I looked at, like Michigan State, um, gave me a conditional. I would have to do one year post back first because they were unsure about my scores. And I was like, well, the DL school is cool with me. They said I'm good to go. So I'm going. No, that's where I'm going. I love yeah. it. Love it. And, you know, you brought up having like you knew where you needed to be and where you would be most supported based on your needs. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess attending A.T. Still Kirksville University, that's in a rural area. Am I correct? Yeah. yeah. OK, so compared to like rural white inhabitants, you know, people of color frequently encounter more obstacles to care for and have lower health incomes. I'm sorry, outcomes, right? So have you observed any differences regarding mental health within the minority community in a rural population versus like a more urban city population? So I feel like we forget or we just sidestep that rural has a lot of the same obstacles as urban. They don't have the same access, not because it's not there. It's because it's miles and miles away. So in a different way that urban people don't have access, like we don't have access because those providers are priced out or we don't have transportation to get there. They don't have access because transportation is four hours away. So it's similar. Um, I mean, Kirksville, Missouri is like not a fancy place that you would want to go and like, and, and not super minority anyway. But I felt like a lot of the people that were there had the same issues that urban people were going through in terms of access, pricing, um, just lack of healthcare literacy, because we're doing other stuff. We have farms, we have other jobs. That's important. Like us going to work every day is important. That other stuff is a healthcare thing that we have to take care of. You know, next. Oh, yeah. My cousin got one colonoscopy, but I never did because I've got things to do. Who can be down for a whole day and go travel and do this and come back? My job will be behind if I do that. So it was similar in that faction and minorities in general in the healthcare sphere. We are lacking our access because as a group, we don't we don't have knowledge of when something is actually an issue. Or is it mm. something that we all just experience? How many of us have said, oh man, I'm so depressed. I didn't do X, Y, Z. So it's almost normalized in, in the realm to the point where we don't think that we need to pursue treatment because it's so normalized. Or it's kind of a flippant behavior. You tell some man, I'm really struggling. And they're like, I mean, we all struggle. Mm-hmm. So now we're trying to empathize with you by saying, yeah, I feel you. Like I struggled as well. But also Mm -hmm. it makes it almost dismissive because now you're saying, well, that's just a normal part of life. At what point do we have a litmus of us needing actual treatment? And Mm -hmm. we forget that even when things are going great, you could have a great day, but you could still springboard something off of somebody else, like a therapist or a healthcare worker and come up with a different perspective that you're not used to. Or how many of us don't have a mom 
or a dad to call or a grandparent to lean on because they're not in our family sector. And so mm. that we have to start filling in for those empty places. We have to I fill agree. in with a good college friend. We have to fill in with a good therapist who can help you say, you know what? Don't call him back. That's super tough. Right. That's a bad idea. Don't do that. And here's why. Because when you're with him, you're this way and can give you that mirror that you need. Sometimes psychiatry has nothing to do with anything being wrong, but has everything to do with how do we get better at self-regulating and understanding what our triggers are, understanding how we're perceived, understanding how we convey information. Mm -hmm. It's very similar, I think, to like the diagnosis of a schizophrenic. You talk to someone who's schizophrenic, they have no idea right. that something is wrong. And they're giving you sentences and they're looking at you like, don't you get it? And you're like, no, the way, no. It's it, the way it's organized in your brain doesn't make sense to us. So how do I help you organize it? I can do it with medication. I can do it with cognitive behavioral therapy. I can do it with having to see you more often so I know what there's lapses in your treatment. I can do it by talking with your family so that they understand your, your condition and they understand your symptoms and what to look out for. I can do it with talking to you about how you need to sleep better and how that's important for how your brain health is, how we think about inflammation and what we eat. So it's the same way. If I can't convey to you what's going on with me, I'm not being effective and I'm not living to my potential either. So we have to start seeing that joining our doctors and finding someone to help us is just as important. And that stigma has to go to the place where it's not flippant, it's not passive, it's not a thing that everyone goes through, but it's something that everyone gets help with instead. You said so much um, I, to your point earlier about, you know, our community, we tend to like we empathize with each other regarding our traumas or, you know, if we are feeling depressed, however, whatever have you. And it I think the empathy like, yeah, girl, I feel you. It doesn't push you towards, well, what are you doing about it? How are you going to help yourself? So I think that's really important. Um and it's really good to know that we have people like yourself that are in this space um, because, you know, the, the field of psychiatry, especially how many times have we seen a person of color who's a psychiatrist um, that's at the front line for our treatment? So yeah. really happy that you are amongst the number. And I think, now, too, mm -hmm, I think, too, there's a there's a point there where we don't have enough people that say, and then I got a Lexapro. And I didn't have to struggle so much. There's this, there's this sort of a community feel that we all struggle. So struggling is our baseline. Yes. You know, there's a bunch of people not struggling in the same way. Like they get up and they're like energized to go to work. That's a real thing, which all of us are like, I don't remember that day because I started medical school. But you have to know that there's a litmus and you can't see it because you haven't, it's been so long since you felt that way. You forget mm -hmm. what it feels like to not have that weight on you. And so a lot of mm. times. Say that again. So a lot you of times you have to start treatment to get to the point where you're like, that is better. And then we go, hold on, let me increase it just a little bit more because there's a better, better. And you're like, no, there's not. And then they take it for a couple of weeks and they're like, that is a better, better. And you're like, see, I told you. And you get to the point where those things are lifted because we, our empathy is like, it's tough every day. Yeah. It's hard for my mom. It's hard for my cousin. She doesn't have depression or so she thinks because she doesn't know what those things look like. And she said it's tough. 
So we have to really reframe the way that we think about these things and not to make ourselves have these symptoms to say, oh, I'm sick, right? But to make ourselves know that there's a there's a plateau that we can reach that feels more comfortable where we can be better moms, we can be better students, we can be better friends, we can be better neighbors that when the guy doing something crazy next door, you're like, he's struggling, it's okay. Mm. And you go in your house and it's not something that shatters your day or changes the way that you feel about that or doesn't right. become an issue, you know? I agree. And you you mentioned, so Trinidad and Tobago, that's your background, my right? My mom, your mom. She's, okay. she's Indian from Trinidad. My dad is Lithuanian and black. Okay. So talk to me about the stigma of mental health and how, like, for anybody who even wants to have these conversations, whether they're a medical student, a healthcare practitioner, to even kind of shift, you know, or get to shift or start the conversation to shift the mindset and the narrative behind that. Because, you know, we're strong. Caribbean people are strong. And, you yeah. know, it. we just going to get through but to your point, I'll tell you that my mom's nickname for me is Screamy Mimi because like I would like have a meltdown and be like, I can't. And the test is due and something. And she'd be like, there you go, Screamy Mimi again. And I'm like, it's not normal for me to feel overwhelmed like that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the shift really comes from us getting better words to put to what we're feeling. Because a lot of us don't have the correct vocabulary to describe what's going on. I just feel tired. No, you have low motivation, which means that when you have a task in front of you and you know you have to do it, you have zero motivation to pursue your career. That's the language that needs to be there. Because if I tell you no motivation to pursue my career, people are going to say, that's weird. You've always been super driven. Not that you're tired. Because tired is general, right? You have to put it to the point where... I used to get really excited to see you guys and go on like our normal girls night. And I don't even look forward to it anymore. I just have no, I'm able to like abolition. I have no interest, no anhedonia. I'm gonna have no interest in what's going on. Right. I can't make an emotive uh, response. If we start using better vocabulary about what is actually happening and how we're feeling, or we start getting to a point where we're talking with someone to get, feedback on what vocabulary that could be, I think then we can start really having a better conversation about it because I hear you in a different way. If you say, I have no motivation to do stuff I used to do mm. in a different way than you say, man, I'm just tired. I just been overworked. I'm tired. That doesn't carry the same weight. And unfortunately in our kind of Caribbean culture, the way we talk to people is not by tone. Because we don't hear when you have that sad tone. It's by the collective and how we can make the other person feel what we feel. So it's a different way that we relate to each other. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that needs to be said. And we're so used to sort of dealing with things as a single entity because we're overwhelmed with everything else in the world. You know, it's dangerous to travel. It's dangerous to eat these foods. It's dangerous to do this. We have, you know, all of these different chronic illnesses that are attributed to us. So our general life is already dangerous and a lot. I don't want to put something extra on somebody else, but right. see, instead of I'm not putting something extra on, I'm using you as a springboard, as a mirror to clarify what's going on with me. Let me just talk to you for 10 minutes. Let's sit down and have a cup of coffee. Let me just call you on my ride home and see, does that sound like that's how I normally am or is something up? So, I mean, I use depression just to sort of 
because most people have had some bout of it or have recovered and they don't always need intervention for that. And that's true. But some ways it would have made it take us maybe six months of us to get back to where we needed to be. And we just struggled through it. Right. But what if in those six months you missed two job opportunities and you failed three tests and now your trajectory has changed? I feel you. You don't need meds. You don't need help. But guess what? Time is money, too. And it's awesome. Right. right. I missed the last birthday of someone and then they passed. You didn't know that was what was going on. But maybe it's better to get some assistance as a low level to help us to get back to where we are. Because of course, yes, we all believe the body can heal ourselves. We can do it ourselves. That's always what we say. My mom thinks she can handle her cancer ourselves. I just won't eat sugar. And you're just like, that's not physiologically how it works. And why not give yourself a crutch? Why do we always turn down help? And that's true. We always do that. We turn down help because I'm strong. I can do it. But there's points where being strong and doing it on your own actually makes the journey way longer. So let's do that. Just like I would be happy to take a study guide from you if you already went through the chapter. All right, give me the study guide. Let's do this. Because that's sort of the framework that you have to change it to because that's what's going on. And if you're anti-medication, cool, that's fine. I have no problem with that. But there's other ways that we could be seeing each other. Even if I just see you monthly, it gives you an hour of you to have no one else in the room for you to say what you need to say. Even if nothing happens, even if I do no pharmacokinetic, you know, no farm at all, no pills, that alone is a different kind of reprieve that we don't have in our households a lot of time. Agreed. And we don't have social equity where we can take the kids to the grandparents and leave them there. Not all of us can do that. So right. how do we get an hour by ourselves? We don't. You have a gym membership that you can go to? Usually not in our neighborhoods, right? You have a spa membership you can go to? No. You go to the beach, right? There are places where other other people have built in quiet time and self-reflective mm-hmm. time, and we don't have that. So use your insurance to go take your hour and talk to somebody about something else. That's right. Therapy is amazing. Mm-hmm. You, you, that hour or however long, 15 minutes right. every week, however you want to split it up. Honest yeah. to God. Yeah. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. So, okay, we're kind of off off topic, off know, track, but but I'm loving it because I feel like this is necessary. So, let me see if I could kind of steer us back. So, my bad. <laughs> no, please. This is good. It's good for us and it's good for our listeners because, again, SNMA, right? Medical students and yeah. those who have gone through medical school, those who are coming into medical school. And I think on the podcast specifically, we really, you know, we have our resident, um, I call him our resident mental health person, Dr. Alwyn. So we try to really focus on how to better uh, or give content that will aid in bettering our med- mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, listen, golden for me, honestly. Um, so I want to talk about now you are entering, you, you're going to work at a correctional facility, correct? Yeah. So how did you end on land on working there? Like, did you feel a passion for the incarcerated? Like, so just put me in that space for a second Great of my family because they're like you're such a pretty girl and they're gonna like it, you're in a jail right it's fine and it's fantastic actually um 
So when I was in medical school, I did two state hospital um, rotations where they were, some of them were incarcerated and were under the forensic field and some of them were civilians. And honestly, my forensic patients always behaved better because they were used to a regimented system. They knew there were repercussions if they didn't take their meds. There were differences there and they were brown and we were cool. We were talking about stuff I was interested in. And so already I sort of leaned towards state hospital, inpatient, um, whatever. I did a rotation at Rochester um, Memorial Strong Hospital and they have a inpatient facility that's all um, like felons. They're all high level incarcerated felons. And the security there was crazy and it was great. But what you realize is that all of these patients at some point, there was a change. I like to find the change. When did you become, because honestly, I feel like all of us could be criminals, right? Because the social contracts are what we're, what's the criminality, right? You push mm -hmm. me two times in a row, I might lose it. Mm-hmm. What changes that between my regulation and somebody else's regulation? And if I have the um, the psychiatry element to it, I have some disease process that's contributing to it. When I lift that disease process, you're a regular guy who shouldn't be here. That's wild. And but we keep you here because you had that instability or you never get re fully rehabilitated and that's fine and so someone has to take care of you and that's okay too so you saw people at different levels you saw people that had murder charges and they were the person that helps clean the, the tables you would never know no looking at him so if i can't know your criminality or your um intent just by looking at you like we can't know your race we can't know your anything else right then how can i judge you and put you away somewhere because I just don't know what you're capable of. How many people do we see? And they were like, oh, right before he did that crime, he was a nice guy. Mm. They're all nice guys. At some point with someone, there's all the, they're all regular people. So how do we get these people to actually be rehabilitated? How do we actually figure out what's disease process and what's not? And forensic psychiatry has some interesting avenues because they have certain um, exercises where we're looking at, do they understand the difference between right and wrong? at different levels by asking you abstract sort of questions to see, do you understand that intent? Did you have other influences? Were you under the influence of some sort of drug, right? Did you have some sort of disease process where you had hallucinations, auditory or visual? And how does that contribute to your crime? So that part really interests me. When I went through and I decided on psychiatry and I went through residency, I couldn't stand outpatient because outpatient, the, the ball we're moving is so small. Okay, I'll see you in a month. You may or may not have taken the med while you were there. It may have been four days of mist. You may have decided in the middle that you didn't want to take it. You may have forgotten to pick it up. Okay, we're back at square one. Okay, take it again. Now I'll see you in a month. I'm not moving things fast enough for me. And I'm sort of a quick pace kind of person. And I love to see the zero to 60. So I wanted to do inpatient um, at, at at CHI, Community Health of South Florida Incorporated, CHI, um, we have an inpatient unit and it's a crisis unit. And it's so everyone that comes under Baker Act in Florida that either a law enforcement person saw and, and they had some, some issue, they would be brought in for our facility at under crisis and be evaluated within 72 hours by a psychiatrist. And we could hold them and see, et cetera. And what I saw was you had people that went from super psychotic on Molly, et cetera, or undiagnosed schizophrenia, first time psychotic break, and then you medicate them or you help them, and now they're not. And now you're having a different conversation. That zero to 60 was what I really enjoyed, to be able to give somebody back where they were. 
or very depressed, suicidal, right? And after a couple of times of us seeing and, and, and us starting a, an actual disease process, putting a name to it, saying this is what it is, and then having a treatment plan, now you're in a position where you're thinking of your future. When I met you, you weren't. So that turnaround was much more rewarding than my outpatient people where I know I get to be a part of their family and I'm moving through you and now you have another kid. But the the visit was always like, it's such a long process to get you to where I want you to be. In six months with anybody that you meet, they're gonna be in a totally different place. But do I have to wait out this whole six months to see you be successful? Can I just mm. do this stuff with inpatient where I'm like, you were hearing voices yesterday and that was wild. You told me that there was a guy behind you and now, there's not a guy behind you and we're talking regularly and that's perfect. So Progress. Mm -hmm. I knew I liked inpatient for sure. And I knew that in my, especially in Florida, um, I don't speak Spanish. I'm a different kind of Brown. I'm the other Brown. So that's detrimental sometimes because I don't speak Spanish, but incarcerated, unfortunately, all of our inmates and patients are black. Mm. That's not the best way to want to have those patients be your patients. But I know for a fact that this is the first time that they've been screened for PTSD because they finally got booked and they have to be seen by me. Or they just caught a murder charge, right? And they must be screened by me. I have to see everyone that has a murder charge that's pending. So mm -hmm. that's a huge thing that you are aware that you have been accused of taking someone's life. Whether or not you did it, I don't care. It's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in how you're processing that. Or you got sentenced. And now you have to be seen by me because you just got a sentence that you thought you were going home and now you're not. How are you going to deal with that? I am probably in a position to see people at their worst and be able to give them some semblance of no one will see that and some semblance of autonomy. How many times they don't get to open their own doors. They don't get to say when they eat. They don't get to say what they're wearing. But at least with me, you can say what you want to say. Mm. And the first time you can say yes or no to a medication. They have no other autonomy anywhere else or their diabetes isn't well managed and no one else is around to see them. And I can step in and say, okay, well, let me look and see at the chart. Let me see what's going on. Right. Because at least I provide some sort of clarity. They have other stuff that's going on and they just want to talk sometimes about what's on. Man, I have a kid and he's got sickle cell. And I don't know. Let me talk to you about the disease process. Now I'm quieting your anxiety only by speaking to you. How nice to be able to give somebody that gift in a very terrible situation and to be able to say that, or you're being abused in the corrections facility, right? Well, who's gonna help you? The other COs? No. Mm -hmm. The other inmates? No. So at least I am able to step in and say, what are we really doing here? How can we leave him there? How do we move him to where he needs to be? So mm -hmm. that's sort of how I ended up in corrections. Um, and in real life, I had a friend that was working in Jackson and I applied and they said, you have a great personality and, and like, like temperament to deal with those things because it's not, it's not um, as flowery and fun and fulfilling because these are all difficult stories that you're going to hear. Right. But I need to be able to spend time to articulate with that person on the other side and tell them, you know, you have schizoaffective disorder. No, like, I don't have that. You're like, okay, well, let me talk to you about what it means. Is there some times where you feel like you're talking to people and they don't understand what's going on? Yeah. Do you feel like it's hard for you to convey your information to people sometimes? Yeah. Okay. So let's start there and let's build out so that they actually have tools. So when they do get released, that they can actually pursue in the community and understand why it was so hard for them to get a job beforehand. 
why it was so difficult for them to deal with their family beforehand. How they end up here? How do we get into that altercation? Because I didn't know what was going on with me and they didn't know what was going on with me. Let me get you to a place where now you're able to sustain yourself to the best of what America will let you with the felony or whatever you have going on so that you know yourself better. So I think corrections is a really interesting population. It's super hard in a lot of ways. It's dangerous in a different way. But I also like at the end of the night, I know that he either took the medication or he didn't. Someone was there the whole time. I know if it was missed. I know who, who missed it. I know all those things. We're outpatient. I have no control. So that's my long, long, very winded spiel. That was a very amazing winded spiel. Because, um, I mean, you know, I think we all consider aspects of medicine we would consider going into. Right. And there was a special on HBO like years ago of a female i think she was a black female who was working in corrections season but to hear your take and like how you actually treat and advocate for Mm -hmm. these people is just our people because you said you see nothing but black black and brown faces there so yeah that was very informative and hopefully oh go ahead and even to like so we'll have like a patient come in i'll read his last name and uh and the other guy that i'm shadowing is puerto rican so still a minority but still different right Mm -hmm. um and so I'll read him, like, you Haitian? He's like, yeah. So the other guy read his name as just jail number, whatever, whatever, and moved on with it. But it's important for me to know your background because when this guy hears voices, it's spiritual to us. It's, you know, it's our grandfather talking to us sometimes, right? We sort of normalize it, right? But that's fine, but I'm still going to give you a bill of 510 to quiet that down so you can get to sleep tonight. Okay. So that approach wouldn't have happened from the other guy, but it will with me. And so why not be able to use your platform and like use who you are as a person to understand that nobody else is going to look at the difference between the name and go, you from Jamaica. I know this is a common name. Where are you right. from? Right? Where'd you grow up? And I even had a patient the other day and I said, where are you from? He goes, oh, I'm from Miami. And um, I said, oh, you you weren't born in Haiti? And he made it like a face. I said, oh, your mom would be so mad you made a face about you not actually being from Haiti. He's like, oh, you're right. Don't tell her, don't tell her. So it's like five seconds of joy and normalcy that you can give back to somebody that's Mm -hmm. in a tight situation. And that was just cool for me to connect with him because I know my mom is the same way because I was born here and not in Trinidad. And so like I have to claim Trinidad, but like, not really yep. you know mm-hmm. i'm i'm trinidad adjacent so right so there's a lot of stuff that i don't get because i just wasn't growing there and my my mom you know will will make fun of me a little bit for that stuff but i definitely know that i'm was raised by a caribbean mother because i go other places i'm like oh that's mad caribbean only i do that i got right you. only you got it you understand yeah, it. so i'm like oh that's <laughs> i understand now because i was in like a caribbean association in college and i realized like like oh african-american and caribbean-american different oh yeah they're different and there's weird stuff that i do that i didn't know was weird until i figured out that all the caribbean kids do that yeah so to be able to connect and give that person the same sort of like family feel when there is a place that they don't have a family at all Mm. is way cooler and to be to be soft where where even me as a tough person i'm seen as as tough aggressive pointed direct blunt all these other places at every other hospital setting but guess what in corrections i'm the nice one I'm the soft, cuddly one. And that's cool. I could definitely see. Are you are you from the East Coast originally? Like yeah, I'm from Ohio. I'm from Ohio. Ohio. Okay. So I was gonna say some people like New Yorkers, for example, 
they're probably the rough person in a soft setting. Everywhere else, exactly. You put them in, you put them in a really rough setting. Now they are the the we're, cotton. We're so sweet. <laughs> I'm so nice. Oh my god! Thank you for listening to me because the CEO was like, "Get out of here," and I'm like, "Oh, don't talk to him like that. He's older. Leave him right. alone." So it's nice to not be seen in that way and to sort of be rewarded and um welcomed for being brown how many places are you celebrated like that nowhere huh. nowhere they're like oh we have one and you're like cool but this way every patient is like hey that's, that's way cool for me so I, I just enjoy it it's new for me um i have a feeling that i will probably stay in corrections the c fo of the corrections her father was incarcerated and that's why she got into corrections so she's mm. i am that leads the the whole facility and she that's what's her story she goes i wish my dad would have been taken care of better while he was incarcerated i would have i could have seen him in better condition so that's why she went into corrections so we all sort of have like different stories of why we end up there but mm. um it's kind of nice to see that we feel like we're taking care of each other that that your story, man. Uh, I, people are going to be inspired. Watch. I guarantee you after seeing this, like, huh, maybe I should give corrections a go. Um, it's, it's really interesting. It's and, yeah. and the difference is like, so you would never think that like giving someone a diagnosis, right, would change their housing location. But in corrections, it does. Mm. But now I got to think about, OK, what does this do if I if I move them to general population because he's fine? What other anxieties is he dealing with? What does that mean? It's a whole different level of um, medicine. And I think it's interesting too, because we're always so closely tied to laws. Like I would love to go to a JD after this, and then I could do the whole full spectrum and do JD expert witness, that kind of stuff. It gives you some more dynamics than just being a, a clinician who just sees patients. I have to sometimes um, go on there and advocate for patients and talk with their, with their prosecutor or with the judge and say, hey, he's not taking his meds, but look how many times he missed taking a shower and he didn't eat. That can't be good. We have to make sure that he's doing all right there. And they'll say, okay, let's medicate him. Okay, thank you. Because otherwise, how do I get him to, to be better? You know? Right. So just those kinds of things. It's kind of nice. It's not just every day I see a patient, every day I see a patient, every day I see a patient. Which That's good is to know. And you mentioned rehabilitation. I, I have a question that I want to ask, and I'm trying to think of like how to kind of correlate the two. So like in corrections, they there's a need for them to be rehabilita rehabilitated, mm -hmm. um, whether it's through meds, through counseling, mm -hmm. there is a system in place or that you think needs to be in place for them to get better. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So in medical school, right? I feel like there is a lacking in a system for people's mental health to be rehabilitated, if you will, in medical school. So, we recently lost one of our former SNMA members, um, Dr. I don't want to mispronounce, Dr. Nikita uh, Mortimer, Dr. Nikita Mortimer to suicide. She yeah. was an anesthesiology resident. Yeah. Let's have a discussion. Um, just your take on mental health in medical school, mental health in residency, and how you think these the aspects of just training as a medical student, as a resident, are so incredibly taxing on mental health and well-being. They are. I think that 
in medicine, we have the same sort of perception that like, it's always hard. If it was easy, everyone would do it, right? So mm-hmm. we're already building up for us to have a litmus of struggling and uncomfortable days. That's supposed to be our baseline because we're in medicine and it's just uncomfortable, right? But there's a difference when we are the only voice trying to push change. I have been on the backlash of me saying, this isn't working, this is broken. Hey, these attendings are bad. This is what's going on. They treat me differently. Hey, I'm not able to do this. This is not okay. In my medical school, um, I remember one day I went to the parking lot of of PACOM Mm -hmm. and there was a physician that had a car out there and he had a Confederate flag on the car. And I was thinking in my head, how do I learn from you in the class? And I know this, I can't unknow it, right? You haven't said anything to me. You haven't treated me any other kind of weird way, but how do I sit here and know that? Mm. Or one time a, a professor made a comment like, oh, I can't, ta- I can't see this radiologist, like this radiograph. I can't tell it from a Chinaman, like as a joke. Like I can't tell this from a Chinaman. Bro, what? So we already have more anxiety, more thoughts, more taxes on us, just being the the person that doesn't really fit in medicine. Mm -hmm. When we try to go up and and push change, now we're a target because now they know it's us that's pushing the, the envelope. So we have to do it, but we have to do it in a way that's smart. And that means that I have to be able to have a core group of people there that I can springboard ideas off of that checks on me in a different way that I can say, man, I don't feel like doing anything today. I couldn't even get out of bed today. And that can be okay. And we have a solution for that. Mm-hmm. And it not be, well, let's just study a little bit, right? It has to be, let's go outside, call your mom. Do you need to take time off? Is there a way for us to do FMLA? Is there a way for us to go see somebody else? How can we do something? Because I think all of us at some point have struggled, like crazy struggled, where if we told somebody else, they would have been like, oh, you weren't okay. I think all of us have done that. I know I did. I, there, were, there were blocks where I, I would watch an episode of Netflix and do like one packet and be like, oh, that's all I can do today. Because I was just so overwhelmed by what was mm-hmm. going on. And it's the first time that we have so many pressures. And I think our families for the most part, are not doctors. So when you call your mom to be like, man, I got 87 on this exam and now I got to get it, whatever. They're like, you'll be fine. You're like, I am not fine. And, and yeah. we don't have someone to sort of understand how much pressure that that is. And mm-hmm. so it's difficult then to reach out again and re-explain it because you feel like you're almost saying the same thing over and over again and re-saying it. So I think that when we are in these positions, residency and otherwise, we need to go to a place that has people that we can share with. My program director at um, Community Health of South Florida is a younger Puerto Rican male who is from the area. And he gives me such calm being able to talk to him frankly. I don't have Mm -hmm. to professionalize it up. I don't have to say anything extra, but having him in place when before, when the other program director was there, having him be there has felt like the greatest gift. So I can go in there and be like, man, this is bullshit. This is what happened. Da, 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 da. I don't have to be professional. I don't have to write it. I don't have to put it in a form. I don't have to do anything like that. And having someone like that in the residency program who you think you connect with, who you think cares about his residents, who you think will move your schedule around if you need a break, mm-hmm. 
maybe you had, I had a bunch of really hard rotations back to back and I needed a break and he, they moved my schedule around so that I could have something where I was on a lower acuity one. I wasn't on nights again for the next, the next month, right? Having someone in the residency or in your medical school, when you go to do these interviews, look for someone like that, where you think that's going to be my guy when I'm in, when I'm in residency and he's going to be able to help me and advocate for me. I had other attendings that really under, wanted to understand my personality and wanted to understand why I'm the one that's always so mouthy in the, in the meeting. Well, because I have a lot of stuff on me and that, that all of these things, it's like triggering, right? So when you say another problem is added to the list, well, what about the other problem you didn't face last week? I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I have a lot of concerns. just want to know. <laughs> these, ones, these ones all affect me. Just one or two of those affect you. But every single one that we bring up affects me. How do I get perceived differently than the other guy over there who has a family, whose dinner's ready when he gets home, versus the girl who moved down here by herself, doesn't have anybody else? What are the differences mm. there? Having an attending who's willing to understand and stratify how they speak and how they interact with us is there. Also, all doctors are not teachers. We get hired to be teachers, but all of us are not teachers. So look for people who have a passion for teaching, mm. who want you to learn it no matter what. I can give it to you this way, right? But a tutor or someone else is gonna give you three different ways. Which one do you learn best at? Look for a program like that. Because right. not all of us learn in the same way. All of us have undiagnosed, probably learning disabilities and things that are there because we didn't know because we were the first kid or we were the only kid who was trying to pursue that path. Mm -hmm. I'm the first one, so I have no idea. And then I feel like, oh, you know, you don't process when you when you write. Oh, no, I didn't know that. That's why I talk so much. Interesting. But we didn't have anyone to sort of tell us that, you know. Mm. So look for people that are engaged with the actual people. They don't have to all be brown. They don't have to all be whatever. I, like I said, I went to Kirksville. I had a lot of weird stuff happen to me there because it was Kirksville, Missouri. But... I had people that were interested. I had a good core group of friends that were interested in where I was. And I had the ability to do my clinicals um, at Cleveland Clinic back home. So mm -hmm. that also helped me be successful. Because now the last two years I'm back home, I'm staying nearby. If I need something, I feel comfortable. It's a bigger city, all of these things. Mm -hmm. I'm hooked up with Cleveland Clinic. They're giving me tools that I may not have gotten from somewhere else. So make sure that you're looking for those things when you're looking at a program. And at the end of the day, we're all struggling in some way, whether you think it's hyperacute or not, but we have to tell somebody, we have to talk to each other. Don't let it go where it's been weeks and you haven't said anything to anybody. And that happens because it's happened to me too, where I'm like, man, I haven't talked to a single soul today. I've been in here all day studying and I'm trying to push through this litigation so that we get a wellness committee. Mm. Dang, nobody else is doing that except for you. Like, why do you always take it upon yourself? But also who's going to advocate for me more than me? Right. So I need to get a team. All right. You know what? Let me call Erica. I'm going to tell Erica what I'm doing. Maybe she could help me on this. Right. And then Erica's going to call somebody else. And now there's four of us instead. You have to sort of start sharing these sort of things. And we have to be willing to like take the 10 minutes out of our setting to talk to Erica for five seconds just to make sure she's cool. Mm -hmm. And little things like seeing patients and you tell them, oh, you look great today. That changes their perception of how they're doing that day. Mm -hmm. you did nothing but just repeat what you're thinking that's a really nice whatever sometimes that small modicum of of like happiness that you can give somebody just to be clear with them changes their perspective they're like i thought today was shitty but maybe i do look nice today okay 
it's very small, yeah. but the way we have to check in with each other is crazy. And I think that we have to continue. Don't let just one person push the litigation through. I do that everywhere I go. I'm the loud one. Thanks, Shari. Hey, can you go tell them that we didn't get this and this? I didn't like that I had to work three weekends in a row. Can you tell them? So I do it because I'm the one that's articulate, that has a voice, that doesn't mind, doesn't mind being in trouble, right? But there were so many times where I was the one fighting everybody else's battles and nobody mm. was there behind me. I love fighting the battles because I'm used to it. I have to fight them anyway. It affects me anyway, right? Maybe not me. If it's not, they're not coming for my group, they will come for me at the end of the, all the other groups that they're coming for, right? So make sure that your LGBTQ group that's at the residency program or at the medical school is tied close with SNMA so that you can fight things together. So it's not together. just always pushing it through. Okay, cool. Fight it with the disabilities group. Yeah, you're right. Not only do we need to have a ramp for them here, but we also need to have accessible things for the computer staff if I can't afford a computer. See how that's similar? Access, get it? Same thing, leadership. You have to team up with other people because what it ends up being is it's always on our back and we're like the LeBron of freaking medicine and we're trying to do everything. We have no help, but I need help, right? Recruit people to help you in a different way. Or the one that you're doing a program for, say you're on somebody's paper and that that's the attending and you're doing research for that. Hey, you know what? I actually need you. Can you advocate for me on something else? You know me professionally. That could be a white male over here, but your work, I'm working for you doing research. Cool. Well, now work for me. Mm -hmm. I need you to send a letter to say this on this behalf. How about that? Like we have to realize how much power we have in our, and what we say, and they need us. If we don't reply and there are no students and there are no doctors, what happens? The whole system bottoms out. So I like to go into situations knowing that you need me as much as I need you. Right. So you got 160 grand for my residency spot. Super cool. I only saw 50 grand of it because I'm in Florida. But guess what? That means I'm going to need you to come out them pockets for um, a new white coat. I'm going to need you to come out them pockets for scrubs because I would normally, if I had a bigger salary, be buying those things. Now provide them for me. You know what? It's food super expensive here. How can you help me make sure that I'm eating every day? And so those things were pushed through by residents before me and, and by some of the stuff that we did. And so now CHI provides food for you while you're on campus. Wow. You know how many days I didn't eat when I was in clinic? Tons before that happened. All of a sudden I was like, you know, we had lunch and I can afford it. This is cool. And that in itself is a better day because now you're feeding yourself, you're eating, you're sleeping right. Little tiny stuff like that, which you may not think is measurable and may not help the mental health of like the group. It really does. It also gives me 10 minutes with my other residents to sit down and eat together because we're all going to lunch at the same time. Mm -hmm. That changed the whole culture of how we were feeling at residency. So yeah, these very small but big changes definitely help. Think about stuff like that. Like what, what, what would make me feel like Maybe I'm not getting respected as a doctor. Maybe we have trouble with some of our interpersonal stuff. Okay. Hey, can you give us all unifying scrubs so that they know that we're all residents? We're not baby doctors. We're not med students. We're not whatever. Unify us that way. Provide us with all scrubs. So now we all look the same. Now, you know, I'm a resident doctor. Mm -hmm. And I put that order in and that's who saw the patient next. Think about it from a bigger pers perspective and see how we can push these things through and team up. And if it doesn't serve you, be like, okay, who's a DIO? Who's above him? Who's above him? Because somebody there is 
far enough away from medicine where it's not that what's supposed to be hard. They're far enough away to see the compassion to really right. bring the humanity back to it. So if you can't find it in your core group because everyone's a physician and everything is difficult and I used to, you know, walk seven miles in the snow and blah, 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 that mentality, go above. Okay, are you a human? You're not? Okay, go above. Okay, you own the hospital? You know, our residents are sad. You know, we haven't had a day off together. You know, we get like maybe three hours you know, to do what we need to do, go above. Find to where you can find the person who has enough perspective to say, that's not really a lot of time. Some of those people have kids. Some of those people are by themselves. Maybe we should have a Thanksgiving where everyone comes because some of the people don't have families here. Little stuff like that will make those things feel more approachable, easier, better. Go to places where you can either get home if you need to, fly home, right? Or you have a grandparent that's there things that will ground you and then get a core group of friends where you can say, hey, this is our pack, we're a team, all right? Some days I'm gonna need you to put in 80 and I'm gonna be only a 20. And some days I'm gonna need you to cook dinner for me. Let's let's do Sunday dinners together. We used to do that so that we would see each other and at least at least on Sunday, you knew you had some leftovers and you had a meal. So we see mm-hmm. stuff like that. I love it. It's like taking accountability for your own mental health and just making sure. And you got yeah. like, I'm an only child, but I have a family each place I go because I don't have anyone else to rely on. That stuff's on me. So you have to sort of make it that way. Um, One of my good friends passed right after I left for clinicals. So suicide touches all of us. We've had two or three residents that have passed. So I love Pamela Wimble. She's a wonderful lady and she pushes through a lot of legislation about, about how we should be talking and just the horrors of medicine and stuff. Um, and, and so relying even on her, like I went to a retreat with her before I started residency. Um, I was going back and I just had had a lot of stuff that happened and it was difficult. And I went with her in Oregon for a month, for a week. And just to be able to see that it's not just me, right? Every residency has these same issues. So like, let's make a global pack together. Let's reach out even further than just my residency program. Now I have people that are in other residency programs that I can springboard things, ideas off of. Hey, what did you guys do when this happened in your residency? They had better ideas. Oh, we started a book club and we look, we read all these different things and then we presented it at the end. Just different ideas that maybe you can't think of and you can't see because you're in the trenches of it. When you have a bigger and bigger network that's committed to making sure that we're safe, you do better. So just look for those things when you're applying a residency, when you're applying to medicine and when you're going through it, you know, I love the different programs we have. I love YBAD for some stuff on Facebook. I love to be able to be up there and, and there are, I have internet friends I have never met and probably will never meet, but like, I'm not, I'm not going to go tell her and like something will happen. I'll think about it. Um, so that's helped me in a big way too, because we don't have a lot of black doctors that are places. So, so using those forums for stuff and, and really committing to those relationships, showing up at SNMA events, going to those conferences, those things have definitely helped me in a way that I didn't see possible when I was probably at Kirksville and not a part of SNMA yet. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's been valuable, absolutely. <laughs> I think people will be inspired by for a number of reasons after watching this. I mean, I think there is a, a, a good enough interest at the moment in psychiatry. I see mm-hmm. a lot more 
Um, so hopefully this will continue to kind of push that forward. Um, but if people have some questions or, you know, want to follow you on social media, I don't know if you do talks or if you have, you know, a moment where you give pearls for the day, it seems like you'd be giving some good ones if you do. So yeah. can, is there somewhere they can follow you? Twitter, Instagram, um, wherever. So my Instagram is, it's actually doctor. Cause I'm rude. And then, <laughs> cause you know how we get seen and we're like, are you the nurse? Are you the social worker? Right? I love so, that. So I maybe, maybe I have an attitude problem anyway. So my Instagram is, it's actually doctor. Um, it's up there. It says Shari Moore, I believe. Um, and I can also be reached if you guys want to put my like email address or something up there. I, I love to talk to students. Um, I like mentorship. So if anyone needs to reach me, I will definitely get, I'll send you my information and my email address and stuff and I can be reached for sure. Awesome. Dr. Moore, <laughs> this has been great. I mean, I think I smiled like they're going to be looking like she smiled the whole time. Yes. Cause <laughs> I was just getting my life in this entire interview. So thank you for being here with us. Thank you for the work that you do um, in a space that I think is neglected. Mm -hmm. So continue well, doing the good work. Yeah. Talking to little, little old me who just became an attending, but um, we're excited for you. Psychiatry is a fantastic field and all of us are kind of chill and like casual like that, probably because mm -hmm we were doing a lot, you know, and it's, it's a nice, it's a nice field. And I think that um, it's super important for us to keep, keep that up and keep making sure that we see physicians, right. That we're not only relying on mid levels that we actually see physicians and we say, what's the new drug that's on the market. Should I be struggling with this? How can I do this? You know what family history, let me go ask some questions because it's such a deep field that I think it gets lost in the sauce sometimes. And, and all of us are, are quite capable of doing all the things. So I'm glad to be a full physician, have delivered all the babies, have done all these things and still decided that psychiatry is where I wanted to be. So super dope, super dope, 100%. So thank you. Appreciate Personally, it. thank you for being here with us. To our loungers, thank you guys for joining us for this episode of SNMA Presents The Lounge, our podcast live edition. And we will see you next month for our regular or regularly scheduled episode. Y'all take care. Mm -hmm.